Weekly waits, Will goes on dates And Hayes is late But we're still mates And as of late We educate and postulate About the gym I lift more than both of you combined Oh yeah, this is Weekly Waits with Alex and Will Welcome to Weekly Waits This is episode 53 I'm Alex, with me is Will And with us is no guest today No guest at all, just the two of us Talking about Programming the Intermediate I'm sorry, I will actually title it correctly this time. Well, I wrote we, training we, the last time, didn't I? Yeah, but I was only up for like six hours, so yeah, probably so no all three downloads. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so programming the beginner, continuation of our six-part series, which is going to go to advanced, and then we're just going to unleash three new categories of trainee, programming the <laughs> alien, <laughs> programming the cyborg, and programming the French bulldog. <laughs> yeah, programming the French bulldog. And we'll compare Digby and Ace's athletic prowess. Spoiler alert, Ace is way more athletic. <laughs> way than more athletic. Digby is a very good athlete at resting only. <laughs> He's got resting and <laughs> I mean, eating down pat. That's more than half of the training equation Poor as Digby. far as time goes. Yeah. Digby currently in hospital. Is he? Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, he's a bit crook today. I was wondering um, why I wasn't greeted with a... With a slobbery hello. Um, <laughs> well, I can give you a slobbery hello anytime, Alex. Um, but no, Digby in hospital. A little bit crook. It's a bit miserable this morning. He was off his food. That's how we knew he was sick. Way to start the podcast on a sad note. Yeah. Um, well, on an even sadder note, we're going to delve into the purgatory that is being an intermediate in training. <laughs> the purgatory. <laughs> so, um, if you haven't listened to our programming at a beginner podcast please do because our metrics will appreciate it but also um i'll probably make reference to some of the things i said then when i'm talking about what an intermediate is um the first thing would be defining what an intermediate is and i've got some stuff written down but alex off the top of your head if you've got something spit well we called a beginner um we had four categories didn't we so it was someone who's under muscled someone who is uh, very erratic in the technique someone who's inexperienced in competition and what was the other one uh, someone who's just absolutely strength, strength. Yeah, or just like abs- low exposure to training so, yeah, it's kind so of just things. absolutely weak yeah <laughs> that sounds bad well, from an absolute from terms. an absolute sense absolutely weak. pathetic <laughs> <laughs> yeah useless um so i guess we said one and a half years training um low muscle mass bad body composition low level of training and relatively weak. Yeah, some number of those boxes ticked would be like an indication that you have a beginner there. Yes. So then an intermediate would be like a step up on each of those. So over a year and a half of training. And the intermediate phase can, for some people, be forever. Mm. And, you know, some people will never get out of the intermediate phase, whether that's genetic or whether that's um, just the way that they train, the way they eat, whatever. Um, the, intermediate, the intermediate phase could last for 10 to 15 years. Yeah, um, and I guess, I guess when we have an intermediate, they're usually lacking in two of the five areas, um, two to three of the five areas, and they're probably they're probably okay in in two or two or three of the five areas. So, I thought about it a different way, though that's by, I more or less agree. So I think the archetypal intermediate. Like when you say what's a beginner trainee, most people would agree with roughly the things that we said, you know, low exposure to training, not much muscle mass, blah, 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 blah. Then the intermediate archetype in most people, most people's heads is like, oh, well, you know, 
they can't sustain as fast of a rate of progression, but they still sustain moderate rates of progression and, you know, you can make predictable increases to their strength and their strength is probably moderate in absolute terms and they're technically relatively capable because they've been exposed to training. That's the archetype that people have, but mm-hmm. I actually don't think it represents reality. I think in reality, what you see is sort of... After, like, the beginner phase is just completely unshapen clay. They're just nothing. And then in the intermediate, you start to get sort of the individual foundations coming through, and instead, you usually get somebody who's, like, wildly imbalanced in terms of advancement, like, across the lifts and in terms of just certain technical capabilities. So they might be they might be actually advancing really rapidly at one lift, say the deadlift or the bench, and then really incapable of the squat. Their progression might be faster than you would expect of an advanced lift, but it's not necessarily predictable. There are people who inter- in the intermediate phase stagnate for a little bit and then make rapid gains again, or who make rapid gains and slow down. You can't necessarily say what you're going to see. But really, I think of them as like this broad spectrum of people where for the individual there'll be sort of consistent or predictable patterns of error that might emerge so you know and this is on a lift by lift basis so you might get somebody who instead of doing 10 different squats when they do a set of 10 will do seven good ones and then the last three they'll make a similar error repeatedly or they'll make a similar error above a certain level of intensity same might be true for um, for bench and deadlift you know they'll have uneven development usually across the lifts and also in terms of those markers that alex and i said so they might have good body composition, but relatively poor absolute strength um, compared to that. Or, you know, they might have a lot of lower body mass and not much upper body mass or something like that. But there tends to be, there tends to be strengths. And because there are strengths now, there are also relative weaknesses. And on all three lifts and through the sort of spectrum of being an intermediate there's just going to be a continuum of capability that they sort of exist on in terms of strength, muscle, and technique with obvious peaks and troughs. And those peaks and troughs start to narrow out as they get to advancement because that's when the strengths are being fully developed and the weaknesses are starting to fill in. But as an intermediate, you basically have those big peaks and troughs in what you can do. What do you think of that? Yeah, completely agree that there's always going to be, after the first year, year and a half of training, the the general um, ability of someone is going to sort of come out and we're going to kind of develop a baseline of their capabilities. And that's going to be a technique baseline, a muscle mass baseline, um, an absolute strength baseline for each of the three lifts. And then those kind of, over time, we'll, we'll sort of see, like you'll never, they'll never shift to being even, the way that I see it. No, probably not. So if someone has a good propensity to, say, put on muscle, um, and it's noticeable at the intermediate phase, that they're, they're, that's going to, be something that's characteristic forever for them yeah or, or if someone if someone who's someone who has a like massive propensity to squat really well and let's say that their squat gets to 200 kilos in six months that you know that that is always going to be something that's there yeah, and they'll you know, always be a good squatter yeah that's right or if someone's bench is really lagging and it's really noticeable from as a beginner that's something that's probably never going to actually catch up and it's always going to be something that's there yeah or at the very least it will be the one that's hardest yeah but the reason I think it's important to differentiate between this idea that an intermediate is just this like predictable, moderate rate of progression, moderate strength, moderate technical ability thing and the reality is that your training strategies have to actually address the person you have in front of you, not this idea of just a just someone that you can plan a intermediate rate of progression for. Because just like Alex said, if you have somebody who is like a phenomenally talented squatter but still an intermediate, 
and at the same time a phenomenally not talented bench presser, then chances are the ways in which you go about programming for the squat and bench press are going to have to reflect that. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just went, well, sweet, they're an intermediate, they're going to have the exact same exposure to both of those lifts, you'll probably find because of their natural squat talent, they'll get good at squats and their bench is going to stay shit. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's the same thing with the... Like, we can use body composition as another example. Um, if someone has a large propensity to, to gain mass and they're going to put on muscle faster than someone else who's been training at a similar time, when you go into periodization, you can spend less time accruing extra muscle mass because they've already done it in their beginner phases and you can spend more time on other things. Yeah. So, um, the, whether how, you how, we, how we spend our time mm. is going to be a direct reflection of... of where those where they are in the continuum of those different um what's the word i'm looking for uh capabilities i guess we'll go with capabilities yeah. from here on in i'll refer to those attributes attributes as capabilities only <laughs> all right um those words are synonyms that means they mean the same thing alex yeah thanks dude i yeah. got just got thesaurus.com up oh, okay well they're also homonyms they sound <laughs> the exact same um Homophones sound the same, actually, don't they? I don't know. What's the difference between a homonym and a homophone? They sound the same and mean something different. Homonym, they sound the same and mean something different. I actually can't remember what the difference is. I honestly don't know. Homophones definitely sound the same. I think that's like they're there and there. All right, let's (laughs) shut up. Guys, please write to Weekly Weights, um, like me specifically, and explain the difference between those two. I'm not going to look it up in the next week and just hope we have a dedicated following that can resolve that for me. Yeah, if you send it to me, I won't open it. No, probably not. Um, I'll just screenshot it and send it to Will. (laughs) The first question that we asked once we defined a beginner was how much training do they need to get better? And we had this kind of funny discussion where we said nearly none, but more than none is definitely better. How much training should an intermediate be doing? That's probably the hardest question ever to answer. Yeah, I well, I had deep thoughts about this. But that's, let's explore them. That's what the people are here for. Yeah, so we spoke about our... What do we call them? Would we call them attributes? Is that what we called them? Yeah, they're, from now on, they're character... Fuck, what did we call them? No, <laughs> I said attributes. That was the correct what one. What did I call them? Capabilities. Capabilities. <laughs> okay, we'll call them attributes because no, capabilities them capabil- Yeah, go on. <laughs> Um, so we've got our we've got our certain attributes, yeah, or capabilities, or capabilities, and similar to similar to the way that we program a beginner. If someone is really at the lower end of those, then we can get away with less. And as they get to the top end, we have to do more. Um, all right, how do we how do we even start with this question, Will? Okay, here's how days, I would, days per week. Well, here's how I would think about it: is you can do as little training as it takes for you to improve. And there are people who have trained two days a week for ages and gotten really, really strong. And if you can get through sufficient quality work in two days, that's plenty. But chances are you will need more work than you need as a beginner to get better as an intermediate. And chances are as you advance, you will need more work again. What is weird though is there's some tipping point. I thought about this. I actually want to know what you think, Alex, is that oftentimes intermediates, particularly once you've got that sort of solid enough technical base that you're not just like, injuring yourself or accruing fatigue by being shit at lifting um (laughs) once you've got some type of a technical base down often intermediates can actually sustain heaps of training like more training than an advanced lifter could and if you think back to alex say when you were totaling in the i don't know mid 500s or something you could probably have gotten through and you don't handle a lot of volume so this is a worse example than myself 
but like you could probably have gotten through more work at similar relative intensities then than you can now and if you look at over your lifters so i was talking to craig allen who you coached the other day um as well about like you know how long you want to go per session and things and he was saying back in the day he could do you know four to five two to three hour training sessions of relatively high volume you know nearly all compound lifts a week and he was surviving and he got better he put you know 50 kilos on his total in what 12 or 16 weeks or something training like that but now were he to do something remotely similar on paper with his new levels of strength craig squats in the high 200s benches in the high hundreds and pulls close to 300 as well like 280 ish or something 290 290 so yuck he's a very strong guy were he to do that now he'd die you know and i could say the same for myself don't you agree yeah i do and i think that's just a reflection of of absolute load the, the stronger you get, the more relatively fatiguing each rep is. Yeah, and that's, again, preview of the advanced episode, that's part of the wicked problem of advancement is the better people get, typically the more like area under the, the curve in terms of training stress they need to actually get much adaptation. But your ability to sustain stress doesn't increase in a way that's commensurate with your strength, strength or your need to endure stress to get better. And so that's another reason why people who are really advanced need periodization and need active rest and things is because when they push really hard to get better, they can only do it for a while before they break and so they only get a little bit better. For intermediate lifters, yeah, like you said, they're not handling really heavy absolute loads. Um, they can chew through lots of work. They, they have decent work capacity if they've been training hard for a while. You know, So oftentimes they can do lots and lots and lots of work and oftentimes they'll get lots and lots and lots better provided the work is reasonable quality. But whether they'll actually get lots and lots and lots better than they would if they just did moderate amounts of work, I'm not certain, to be honest. I guess that's part of the question. Um, anyway. I think well, I think the way we should frame this discussion about how much training is um, is the way we use uh, stru- uh, phasic structure versus the way we use it in a beginner. Sure. Well, let's so, start with that. So the way we, I guess, structure phases for a beginner is there's kind of no phases. No, you, like being a beginner is almost yeah, a phase. You just yeah, that's right. You're in the beginner phase. You just train. You do lots of different stuff, and you know, and then you get mostly better. high reps, and you're better. And then all of a sudden, you're in intermediate, and then things get a little bit more difficult. And we need to start highlighting certain attributes. See what I did there? Yeah, attributes. or capabilities. Or capabilities. So it's to spend time um, highlighting certain attributes to bring those out in the intermediate and they need to be sort of more focused than they would in the beginner because we get to that point where we can't bring up all those attributes at the same time because we don't have the amount of recovery capabilities to recover. Are you looking at me to fill in there? Yeah, it's your turn. To the people, if you saw my Instagram story, it was filmed just then. That's why I was distracted. (laughs) Um, I agree. So, as yeah, what are we saying? How much training do you need to do so we start using phasic structure to bring up the yeah these capabilities or attributes in a sort of sequential manner. I actually wrote some notes about that that I want to get into later once we've laid this out. But then the question of how much training do you have to do arises from that, I think. So, so if you get somebody and you go, well, their lifts are starting to get better, they're not advancing at as fast of a rate and they're making predictable errors, but their biggest problem is that they're under-muscled. Um, and so we're going to focus mostly on just getting some more muscle on them and still exposing them to practice with the lifts, which might be a reasonable first step for a lot of intermediates. Then how much training you have to do is basically going to be dictated by that. So how much training do you have to do to gain muscle? Um, 
the evidence seems to be that you can gain muscle actually from quite low volumes of training but higher volumes tend to be better so you want to find a way to expose somebody to you know somewhere between 10 and 20 working sets per week per muscle group and if you plot that out that starts to look pretty odious unless you're doing it across you know a minimum of four days maybe three um you know so you might want to train in that structure um likewise if you're trying to improve their strength you need to expose them to a reasonable number of sets at a reasonably high intensity across the weeks um and again how much training is that going to entail you know say you think they need to do eight sets of squats a week plot the same thing out for bench and deadlift and you have a rough idea of the training dose and then it's up to you to basically arrange that into a program that meets their needs um like i did say right at the very start of this discussion there are people who train two days a week and just go i'm going to squat hard and bench hard on monday and deadlift hard and bench hard on thursday and do some accessories on either of those days who still get better but probably you want to start titrating your dose to how much you think is going to drive adaptation in that person and that still meets their level of desire to train so i yeah anyway bring like after maybe eight minutes of this discussion I think a good starting point is four days a week, though three is totally viable, five to six is totally viable as well. And two is the type of thing you do when you're like, oh, you know, I i don't know, whatever it is, I'm a nuclear engineer and I have a family of five and I can only train twice a week. But three to four days is good, five is also good, six is hard, two is silly unless you have to. What do you think? Yeah, in, agree entirely. Um, <coughs> and yeah, we touched on that they can sustain higher higher lows than the advanced. Alex, what do you think about um, just the value of giving people heaps of training as opposed to giving them like a minimum effective dose? In what in what respect? Well, I said like, remember we were speaking a few minutes ago about how like some intermediates can sustain heaps and heaps of training and progress from it and get better from it. Um, I don't think it's um, necessary yeah. to do just as much as you can mm-hmm. for... Um, the reasons we spoke about earlier, which is we don't have the recovery, we don't have the recovery recovery capabilities to um, sustain that type of volume over a long period of time. Sure. And we've spoken about this for like a million times about um, planning for the future and trying to be the best we can in ten years' time. And if we already if we're already looking at it as if like we're an intermediate and we want to be advanced, we know that this intermediate phase is going to be you know probably at least five years. Mm. and um, we need to be setting ourselves up for later down the track and if we're just hammering ourselves with as much as we can as much as we can as much as we can we're going to burn out mentally we're going to risk risk higher chance of injury blah 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 yeah. so I don't think it's nece- I don't think it's necessary to train as much as you can but I also don't think that minimum effective dose is what we should do either I think it should be somewhere actually probably dead in the middle I tend to agree and most people who come to me who say like who basically just say they want me to plan their training that's where I aim for is I don't give them the absolute minimum. I give them the amount where I think they're going to get about the most marginal return on their training. And that's usually somewhere in the middle. Um, that said, I also don't think it's bad to experiment with doing lots of work. And I don't mean because I think it's going to necessarily yield you unbelievable gains. I just think that if people have the desire in the short term to train really hard or to push themselves and you know experiment with stuff like that, like you know why not like it is a hobby but i also don't think that's a realistic way to see yourself training in the long term and i think if you set yourself up with a maximalist mindset like alex said of like i'm going to do the most work i possibly can always until it breaks me 
then you will either break physically or mentally in the longer term. Yeah, I think yeah. those phases of training need to be saved for, you know, maybe just before you go away on holiday or something like that. Yeah, if you have a very important competition coming up and you're highly motivated, that's a time when, as an intermediate, and totally, I reckon you can push yeah. it. Or if we were talking about phasic structure a little bit earlier, if we are in a, say, a hypertrophy block and someone has the desire to, you know, push themselves as hard as they can for 12 weeks, that might be a good place to throw in as much volume as we can and try and yield the best result in that period of time yeah for sure so long as the next phase is planned to sort of peg things back a bit and then um progress again yeah i think yeah the i guess the takeaway from this is like you have to have some type of concept of there being a throttle before you can actually sort of you know really push the throttle do you push the throttle i don't know choke the (laughs) choke the clutch box throttle um before, but like before you can do that, you've got to actually be aware of the fact that you can pull it back as well and you're not not gaining. Right? Yep. So you don't give people the hardest thing you can possibly do. You give them what you think they need, choose your times to push and also choose your times to pull. And that's one of the things of phasic structure. What, are, um, what I wanted to mention and sort of just because what you said about plan, planning future phases um, brings it up was this idea that um, of like longer term planning and annual planning and things. And... I think it's a really good idea and it's something we spoke about um, a little bit in the long-term development episode we did on episode... I want to say 27, but Um, I feel like that's a huge guess. Well, it's certainly better than my guess. About 20 weeks ago... I'm going to look it up. About 20 weeks ago, Alex and I spoke about long-term development. We mentioned annual planning as being really a good idea, particularly for intermediates where you plot out, say, which competitions you're going to do, which ones you're going to emphasize... And you think you do a bit of a self-assessment and say, how am I going to plan my training so that I sort of bring up the attributes that I want to work on in the meantime? 29. 29? Cool. Um, I, think that's a, I think that's a really good idea. But I also think that within that approach, as athletes and coaches, you need to be flexible because I think it's a fallacy to think that future adaptations and how long you're going to progress that X and Y and Z strategy for um, are entirely predictable. That's not really the case. And what tends to happen is sometimes you'll do something and you'll just hit upon, you know, something that is successful for the athlete. So being willing to sort of stretch and push and pull in those phases is really good. But I do think it's also important to say this would be the next logical step, you know, um, pending the results of what's coming up. So like Alex said, if you're like, hey, you know, we're going to really try and push to put on some muscle for you and we'll try and gain five kilos over the next however long, four months. If you if you plan to do that and at month three or four, they're making crazily good gains, their body composition's good and they have space to do more, then by all means you can push more. I wouldn't arbitrarily cut that back. And likewise, if at month two or three, you're like, wow, this person's really burning out. They're not making good body composition changes and they look like they need a period of more active rest then it's perfectly fine to depart from that plan as well so those annual planning ideas are more like a scaffold that you fill depending on what you observe during the time than actually having like a concrete this is what i'm going to do for the next 24 months planned out i think some people sort of mistakenly get motivated by the idea of saying i'm going to do yeah this for 24 months and this is where i'll be when instead they should be saying this is roughly the path i see myself taking i'm going to navigate it as best i can based on the information that arises when i'm on the journey what do you think of that yeah, I agree. And I had another question for you. Go. Um, how do we determine the order of the phases mm-hmm. and what phases should precede previous phases? Mm-hmm. And 
when do well, how do we decide uh, what the particular lifter, what phase they should enter? Okay. How do we decide the order yeah, of the that's phases? Pro- uh, the, first, the last question is probably the f- first question you should ask. Answer. What was the last question? Exactly. Um, how do we determine what the particular athlete should do, which phase they should enter? Okay. Um, I actually had somebody, I'm sorry I can't bring your name to mind, write to me asking pretty much this on Instagram and I sent them an audio message answer. <coughs> um, how do we determine which phase an athlete should enter? Forgetting all competition, um, competition commitments, you basically get the person and you do a bit of a needs assessment. So Alex has already alluded to the idea that you might see people who are like pretty well muscled but lacking in absolute strength relative to their muscle mass or who are technically quite proficient lifters but lack muscle. So you look at the lifter, you make some type of an assessment of, you know, what have I got in front of me? What needs shoring up? Or the inverse might be to say, what is the strength of this person? What's currently working and yielding results for them? But either way, you make a determination based on who's in front of you, what you're going to try and do. So oftentimes for intermediates, your best bang for your buck is going to be saying, we're going to put some muscle on this person, but it's not always the case. You look at them, you say, okay, they're under-muscled. We're going to start with some hypertrophy work and then we'll follow that up with some strength work when it seems that stuff's run its course. Um, That's a reasonable decision to make. The next question was the order of the phases. So the, the idea of like block style periodization um, is that the phases should feed into each other and then the overarching idea tends to be that hypertrophy so you build muscle mass um, then facilitate strength gains because you have all this newfound muscle mass with which to make neural adaptations and with which to you know make changes to your pination angles and things and whatever and then suddenly you have a stronger athlete and then you peak from that and that tends to be a really good way to plan the lead into competition because it also gives you like a stepwise increase in intensity Mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily have to be the way in which you plot training for somebody in the intermediate phase for powerlifting. Um, if you don't have a competition coming up, when you do, I think that's a really smart place to start. And most people peak best by doing heavy weights because it's the closest thing to lifting. Involved. Let's talk about that competition prep as if we're doing these three phases. Well, I'll very quickly touch on the off-season one and then let's do that. Well, I was going to say... Um, even if we don't have a competition in mind, we're still going to follow those three phases, correct? It's just those, the well, length of those phases is going to change. Yeah, I think the length of those phases might change, but it's not it's not necessarily the case that you can't just go hypertrophy, hypertrophy, strength, hypertrophy. Oh, yeah. And have like a hypertrophy sandwich. <laughs> or, you know, instead... Wouldn't of, it be a strength sandwich? Well, you could, well, you could have a strength sandwich. hypertrophy is the bread. Well, true. Yeah, maybe. Um, you said you hypertrophy, strength, strength hypertrophy. My so point... strength is in the middle. So that's the sandwich. <laughs> there was hypertrophy and strength in the middle. So really, you got a you've got a club sandwich of strength. <laughs> club sandwich. But no, my point. This is actually an important point. My point is that the idea, like, although there is a physiological rationale by which the phases build off each other, you don't necessarily have to arbitrarily go from one to the other because you could also make like the inverse assumptions. You could say you get you know, strength, technical outcomes, and you get sensitized to volume and therefore you get better at hypertrophy. So you could also start with some strength work before you went to hypertrophy as well and then go back with more variety. So really, I think it's better to see the person in front of you, make your logical starting point, run it for as long as seems necessary and then make the appropriate change in the off-season. In the competition cycle, which is what you asked about, um, you were saying we've got to go hypertrophy strength peaking or at least that seems the smartest thing to do. And I agree with that. That does seem the smartest thing to do. What was the next part of the question? 
um, how does the length how does the length of these phases change based on who the person is in front of us and maybe the time in between competition so again to me that's just based on the um, that's just based on the individual that you get in front of you so if you have somebody um, actually let's do a let's answer this for a couple of just hypothetical people yep okay let's say somebody who's technically quite apt mm-hmm. um, really under muscled mm-hmm um, and presume they've got about 14 weeks to prep for the competition and the last three or four are going to be devoted to peaking, how would you split the hypertrophy and strength? Uh, uh, so 14. So the last three weeks is peaking, so 11 weeks, probably seven weeks hypertrophy, four weeks strength, three weeks peak. It's because that person's under-muscled. Yeah. So, like, personally, agree. I think that's a, like, yeah. perfectly reasonable way to decide it. So you've said weakness is muscle mass. You already know that. Yeah, so we want to spend the most time there. Okay, and then the inverse as well. So somebody who's really well muscled doesn't have as good strength. Um, you know, you're going to spend three or four weeks peaking. Would you just flip that around and go four seven? Yeah, probably or or five six or something something along those lines. Right. So you just bias it towards yeah. strengthening. But again, it's a continuum. There's going to yeah. be different levels of different things. Every every person's going to be different. Sure. But what about if you have somebody? And this is this is something I've been thinking about. I don't actually have an answer. What if you have somebody who, say the person who's muscled but doesn't have very high absolute strength, but you just know they're really responsive to hypertrophy training um, and they don't seem to be really responsive to strength work, would you still want to take time away from the thing that they plainly get better at with exposure to it to give them more of the thing that they don't seem to get better at? Um, In that instance, it might be a better idea and we're going to get into this topic later Mm. um, to give them like a couple of top sets to give them that exposure and then the, their back downs can be that bread and butter, which is has helped them improve. So they're kind of getting a bit of both. That's actually... I hadn't thought of that so as an answer, so that's that's really smart. So if like, you know, if you were that 14 weeks out and, you know, you might have someone doing um, three or four by 10, you might give this person two sets of six and then three by 10. Yeah. Um, and then that would progress into two by three and four by five or something like that towards the end of that block before the peaking block. Yeah, that's so they're getting a little taste of the heavier work um, and they're still getting that higher volume that they enjoy and is has been beneficial for them. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I guess my thinking more and more, um, particularly with regard to intermediates, is when people are progressing at something, like if they're getting benefit from it, then don't take it away wherever you can. You know, And it's one thing to say, I want to shore up a weakness in your development, but not if it means you detract from developing a strength and particularly in the early intermediate phase oftentimes the things that people get really good at quickly like we were saying about our squatter with Mm. a shit bench earlier are just the things that they're good at so you might as well just let them get good at that provided it doesn't detract from the other things absolutely um so that was a smart idea with the top sets yeah we will get back to that so we spoke about that how long should be devoted to each phase basically depends on which one they need more work on or which one they're going to benefit from more work on um what was the next question with regards to periodization? Um, the next question, which is from that, is competition. Mm-hmm. So planning our competitions. Um, we said, our, what did we say about a beginner in competition again? We as soon as talk. they want to do it, they should do it. As soon as they want to do it. And then, yeah, okay. So for the intermediate, how often should we look at competing? Um, and what is the priority of these competitions? Um this will depend on how advanced you are in my mind anyway but in the early intermediate phase i think competing anywhere between two and four times a year is viable 
and it just depends on what you want to do with the time in between. You don't necessarily have to treat all four as being of equal emphasis because I still think getting competition experience and doing it for fun and just fostering a sense of enjoyment is good. So if you wanted to do two comps that you considered important and two that were just cobweb dusters, that would be sweet. If you wanted to do three of equal importance, that would be sweet. Or if you wanted to just only do two comps that you thought was important, that would be sweet too. Um, And then once you've got a rough framework of when you want to compete, then your job is to start plugging the gaps in between with the training that is most productive. Um, Where you have a competition that is of higher importance, that's also where I would probably emphasize having a full peak and a full competition prep. The ones that have less absolute importance, I would spend more time prior to actually commencing an inverted commas prep just working on building up those capabilities. Is that the word that we use? Attributes. 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 (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'd spend more time just working on them and then do a shorter prep, you know, and not entirely half-assed, but like not a full peak or anything for those less emphasized ones. But yeah, two to four times a year for me seems reasonable. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I agree. I like to to have at least one competition for all my intermediates per year that has a big lead-up. So it might be like a five or six month um, phase in the lead up mm-hmm. where they have like a good two or three months away from heavy lifting, building those, um, building stability, building muscle mass, building work capacity, all of those things. And then they get a long time to sort of build into heavier weights before the competition. So I like to have that one priority competition per year Yep. where we have the biggest build up and then around that doing other competitions as either experience or just like a bit of fun so hypothetically so say your priority competition is nationals mm-hmm. um in july would you have one of your lower priority comp uh, priority competitions in like a march or something or would you do them all after the probably month? like february yeah and then you would have the long lead into into early july yep and then you might months. have october and then you and then you'd go february again Right, so in, well, in that sense, That's it's almost three. October to February is your long lead-in, unless February is a comp that you don't peak for. Well, you'd still do like some sort of some sort of peaking, but it's it's you're not going to get that same, you're not going to expect that same like spike in total because you haven't done all that lead-in work. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I understand what you mean. Yeah. So yeah, for me, I I can actually completely see the merit of that. I would all I would probably be more inclined to say like. You know, you might have competitions that you care about in July and December. That spaces them out by four or five months. And then if you wanted to do a cobweb duster, you know, say your most important one was December. If you wanted to do a cobweb duster in like March or April or something, you could do that as well. Have a bit of fun, just get some experience. Treat July is quite important, then have a longer lead up into the one after it. But given that you have that one in March as a lower priority, if I'd said, hey, the big thing that's going to make us better in the next two years is getting some more muscle on your frame, then I would spend a lot more time just devoting myself to working on that and make the prep for the March one short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <coughs> about annual planning, um, so I said what I think a little bit earlier about how I might sort of have a rough framework of the logical steps that I want to take in preparing someone for a competition. Mm-hmm. And I've got my landmark, like important times. But in the meantime, I'm sort of happy to you know, go where the wind blows me in terms of what training I give a client and just change the plan on the fly as long as I'm heading towards where I need to be for them. Do you plot out your phases a decent way in advance? Like, do you say, say you've got somebody who's going to do the Ford at the end of the year, do you then say after that we're going to do hypertrophy for four months or what? Um, it depends on 
it depends on how they do in the competition and how they're feeling about the competition. Mm-hmm. Generally, if they do really well, they'll want to do the same thing that they've just done again. Yeah. Because it makes sense, right? You, you do well, you just repeat what you've done. Um, but I do like to, I do like to, to look six, eight, nine, ten months um, in the future with everyone mm-hmm. and sort of say, okay, we'll do one here and then we'll do one in this month or this next month. Yeah. So they're kind of they kind of have like a six or eight week window where they know they're going to do the next one in that in that phase, and then the rest of the training sort of takes care of itself once we figure out that date. Yeah. So there's I don't plan like I don't plan twelve months in advance in advance, but we have like a a couple of points that we want to hit, and then we plan around that when we know when once they're set in stone. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of makes so sense. So like, if we look at like what Mags has done this year, for instance. Yep. She did December. Yep. And then April. Yep. So four month lead in. Yep. And then she's going to do a quick turnaround to nationals eleven week lead in. Mm-hmm. And then six months into December. Right. So we know that now what she's going to do. We don't know exactly what the dates are of the comp she's going to be doing. So we can't plan it to the week. Mm-hmm. But we know like what the rough um, structure is going to look like when she comes out of nationals. So she's going to do nationals. She wants to work on her body composition, put on a bit of muscle then die back down yeah. and then do another lead in into December. Okay. So we've kind of got that planned. We don't know how long that hypertrophy block is going to be. We don't know how long that dieting phase is going to be. We don't know how much time we'll have after the diet phase for the comp prep, but we have those rough markers put in place already. Yeah. So I think in that instance, there's probably not much different from your approach that you just said that I would change. And I think it's actually motivating to people as well sometimes like, you know, when you ask an athlete to do something for 14 weeks, say, to prep for nationals or 11 weeks in Mags' instance, um, and because they've had a string of competitions, oftentimes they'll almost, they'll be looking forward to the time after competition where they just feel free to train for the thing that is motivating them. In that instance, I, can, I think it's really good to say, hey, after that, let's just make you focus X, Y, and Z and satisfy your emotional needs. <coughs> but I also think... My like my main point is once I were to start that body composition focused training, the time at which I would give it and you know how I would progress, it would probably just be informed by how they're going. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I that, wouldn't say exactly you have right. six weeks to do this. I'd say let's do this, and then when they stop getting better at it, then I'd change. But you'd have a a, a basic idea, like you know, you might say we want to do somewhere between five and ten weeks of body composition training, or five or ten weeks of hypertrophy. Yeah, sure, but then I'd, like, if they were going gangbusters, I'd just preserve it for as yeah, long as I could. absolutely. Um, until it was like, okay, we really, really got to get you mm. peaking because there's mm. a comp coming. Yeah. You know, so long as you're getting better at something, I think there's value to doing it because the overarching thing with intermediates, like you were saying, is you're going to do it for five years, so, you know, and it's like sometimes you won't get a huge lot of return for six months of training and sometimes you'll do six months where it's just like, wow, I'm getting better and better at everything. And while you're hitting on something hot, I totally reckon just keep doing it. Just get better and better while it's there. Learn as much as you can. And then when it stops working, then you have to change. And I think that's also one of the reasons why periodization is beneficial and kind of why annual planning is beneficial is because there's some value in itself in novelty and variation of the stimulus um, just because it gives you something fresh and it gives you new avenues to progress. And this is what I wrote down here. This is, Alex, you'll find this terrifically wanky. I wrote that everybody has an individual journey to advancement. I wrote journey in inverted commas, arrow. It may involve capitalizing on strengths and shoring up weaknesses later or the opposite. 
Um, so what I meant by that is basically, you know, as you go, you will be informed as to what you should keep working on by whether or not it is working. And even though you can talk to other lifters who got really good, they'll tell you what they did on the way, but it might not necessarily be the same steps that you have to follow because you're not cut of the exact same mold as other people. Yeah? Yeah, so I guess uh, we can look at this as an example of this. We can look at like a lift, for instance. Mm. So let's say someone has really, really strong legs. Yeah. You're going to expect them to have a good squat. But if their pelvic control is limiting their ability to be able to use their legs or their brace is limiting their ability to be able to use their legs effectively, Mm. then that's something that then needs to be worked on. Yeah. Versus just continuing to push their squat. Yeah, of course. So we need to be we need to be aware of whether the problems outweigh the performance that they're having mm. or the other way around. Yeah, and to continue that exact same idea, you may not even notice that the pelvic weakness is a problem that is likely to hold them back until they've actually made significant gains in their squat. Like you might get somebody who currently squats 130 kilos or something and you get them to 180 in like three or four months and they're just killing it. And then at 180, you start being like, oh, their movement's kind of honky. And you can see there's excess horsepower in the legs, but you just know that something's going to cap them and it's going to be the fact that, yeah, you know, their back moves all over the place when they squat. And so then you've got to slow down the push and fix that. But that next step in the journey didn't emerge until you actually put 50 kilos on the lift. And that's just pretty much it over and over and over again. That's one yeah. of the reasons having coaching is so helpful. It became the, That becomes the tipping point where um, the inefficiency is highlighted right yeah but yeah my final point on that is like coaching is so helpful in this because you have somebody else who's looking at you with an objective eye going oh here's something i'm beginning to notice about you the more you train you know x y and z happens like you know let's pair that back so we can keep you on this train whereas i guarantee anybody who's put 50 kilos on their squat and their form's starting to go a bit honky normally would be like, fuck yeah, my squat's going gangbusters, I'm going to keep pushing it until they get hurt or they stall. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, we, in the beginner episode, we also spoke about how heavy training should be. And with beginners, obviously that's really pertinent because anything will make them better, but there's there's some negatives to going too hard. And there's also some positives to letting them train hard. In the case of an intermediate, how heavy or how hard might be a better question should their training be? Well, I think the... Um, intensity question is an interesting one with an intermediate and it's going to relate back to the phase of training Um, and because there are phases of training there's going to be a greater difference between the weights we lift in in a hypertrophy block and the weights we lift in a peaking block like there's going to be a broader spectrum of loads that we're going to use as an intermediate versus as a beginner Um, as a beginner we might you know train between 60 and 75 percent for you know a year and you know that's going to be enough weight to progress it's not going to be too much that their technique breaks down it's not going to be too much that it's causing too much fatigue or disruption or whatever the case is um whereas an intermediate there are times where we push to 90 and there are also times where we pull it back to 45 50 percent where we're working on some technique stuff or we're doing five sets of 10 at 60 percent or something like that so this is going to relate directly back to the phase of training that we're in obviously when we're doing hypertrophy and technique stuff we're going to be somewhere between 45 and 65 percent for the most part um when we're in a strength block 70 to 85 and when we're in a peaking block 80 to 95 yeah so fully agree the in terms of how hard training should be as opposed to how heavy it should be 
with intermediates when they like once they tend like get that wow i'm flustered today um once intermediates have that sort of baseline of technical stability you can afford to let them train harder it might you might not necessarily have to let them train harder but particularly in times like peaking you know that things are going to get closer to failure because if you do if you do a single at what would be a max triple it's still two rir you know so you can let them push their main lifts harder you can let them accumulate more fatigue um you can let training sessions be slightly longer and you know here and there you might push accessory work harder again than you would with a beginner because you want them to get through more work um i think that they are apt and capable of doing that you don't necessarily have to do it all the time but in the beginner phase we said there's probably a really good case for keeping a decent amount of decent amount of um juice in the tank with the main lifts in the intermediate phase a lot of what's going to get you better is actually doing some grunt work so you need to let them actually work hardish. If you're doing 75% work for anything other than technique or active recovery, then it should be 75% for a number of reps that are somewhere between moderate and difficult most of the time. You know, and the same thing is true whatever intensity band you're working in. So the relative difficulty of training should probably go up. And that also means that here and there you probably do need to have periods where the difficulty of training is brought down to let them recover, whether they be deloads or you know, more active recovery phases or just implementing variation in your training structure to take stress away. You also need to do that as well. But when they work, they should be allowed to work hard-ish, I think. I agree. Yeah. yeah, so for a beginner, I guess one of the things that we mentioned was um, the main lift should be low RPE and the accessories should be what pushes them for hypertrophy, work capacity, etc. Yeah. That's something that we spoke about. Whereas now for the intermediate all of that main work is going to be brought up. The RPE is going to be brought up for the main work. So probably looking at somewhere between six and nine RPE yeah. for most of the final sets for the main work. Um, and accessory work is probably going to be similar to what we were doing as a beginner, yeah. but just more volume. Yeah, just more volume. Um, but because accessory work tends to be easier, the main lifts, like the relative difficulty will now feel like it's all invested in the main lift. Yeah. You know, um, whereas before, like, yeah, you might do like four sets of five squats at easy and then, three sets of 10 leg press and be like wow my quads are dying from this yeah yeah once you start doing yeah five by ten at 60 percent high bar squats or something you'll think that's much harder than a few sets of 12 leg extensions or whatever yeah for sure um uh what's next well we spoke about um how frequently you should train the main lifts for a beginner um so we should probably touch on that for intermediates i guess this whole podcast has been a prolonged it depends um and I think that's the case with these as well. But Alex, do you have any like baseline recommendations? Squat two to three, bench two to five, deadlift one to three, probably two. <laughs> yeah, that's enough wiggle room to probably be right all the time. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, somewhere between zero and a million on everything. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. I think just like we said before, you get the person, do a needs assessment say how much exposure to x y and z do they need to get better long term and how much do they need in this immediate phase so if you have somebody who coming off a phase of high specificity preparing for a competition who was squatting three or four times is now doing general hypertrophy you might give them you know like two leg focused hypertrophy days in a week of which only one has a squatting pattern that's really similar to the competition squat but intend to return them to two to three exposures to squatting at a later phase that's fine too but I think you just need to have some type of logical reason for implementing the frequency that you do. Um, again, underpinning this is the, at least I think, general consensus that about twice a week 
moderate to hard exposure to things tends to be really good for building general size and strength and slightly higher frequencies particularly of pressing is good for developing max strength provided that you can manage fatigue so you know provided you've got those bounds there i would just ad- like adapt frequencies to what you're immediately trying to get best much to add no nothing to add to that but i guess the next question from that is variation yeah for sure so similar to the intensity question mm-hmm. um very vari- our variation or the variation that we use is going to be directly tied to what phase of training that we're in yeah um if we are in a technique focused um training block or we have a couple of slots in the in the training week where we focus on the technique of the main lifts um those things are going to be pause variations or tempo variations or some sort of variation that highlights a weakness in that particular lifter's technique. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for the squad, it might be someone who loses up a back tightness might do um, a safety bar, yep. just as an example. Um, or if that phase of training is hypertrophy, our variations are going to be based off of um, off of that. So the main lifts are going to take a back seat. And we might see more machine work. We might see um, more stuff that's easier on the joints. Yeah, long range of motion. Yeah, longer range of motions, feet up on the bench, high bar, full depth squats in shoes, etc. Yeah, yeah, instead of the low bar in flats. Um, And as we get closer and closer to competition, we're gonna our training is gonna look more and more like what we do in the competition. So we're gonna bring in bring back the main lifts. Um, Any more to add? No, not really. Um, It's pretty much exactly like what I said with frequencies. The variations that you choose should have a purpose always. Um, and so, yeah, what you do is you look at the slot in your program and say, what tool best fits this? And then just plop it right in, um, basically. And I guess one other thing is, like I said before, there is actually benefit to implementing variation across your program. Um, so although for some people you might n- not need as much overt change to keep things ticking along, there's definitely a case for making it here and there. Um yeah, so just exposing people to lots of variations of things that are going to continue to get them better on a logical basis is good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, beyond that, there's no there's no specific things I would do or avoid in this phase. It's literally just needs assessment, give them that. Yep. Um, yeah, is there much else you want to talk about? Um, <laughs> For me, not enormously, I guess. Well... Yeah, it's been a, about an hour of it depends, so... Yeah, that's a lot of it depends. No, I guess um, once... Well, the I guess the question is, at what point do you start saying somebody's advanced? Because this can be like a teaser teaser for when we get back to the advanced podcast. At what point do you start... Do you, instead of thinking through this framework of, I've got somebody who's going to develop peaks and troughs, do you start saying, okay, the peaks are as high as they're going to get and we've got to start flattening out these troughs and make this person the full package? When does that happen to you? Yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, I think it just needs to go back to those initial, um, what do we call them? Capabilities? What was the other word? Attributes. Attributes. <laughs> <laughs> we must be the two most illiterate public speakers of all time. <laughs> um, yeah, it just goes back to those those attributes that we spoke about, whether someone's experiencing a competition. You know, even if someone has high levels of muscle and great um great technique um and their body composition is good and i'm forgetting the others what are the others 
No, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, go on. Um, and if they have a, if they don't have any competition experience, let's say they've done two comps and they went five for nine and three for nine, mm. they're not an advanced lifter. No, because they don't they're not able to put it all together on the platform. Yeah. Likewise, if someone was technically very propi- very proficient, um, nine for nine, all their competitions, if they're under muscled, they're not an advanced lifter. So I feel mm. like you have to have a very high level of all five of those things that we spoke about to tick over into that. Yeah. I think for my, like for myself, I think that you will see each lift reach a level of advancement before you would ever rate the person like as a whole as advanced. So for an example, my client Chrissy, AKA Alex's girlfriend, Chrissy is a really good bench presser. Um, you know, technically excellent when she's good. Um, sometimes not great when her shoulders are dicky. And Alex and I were talking the other day about it, and I, and I was saying, you know, the thing that makes Chrissy's bench really good when it's good is that her setup is really good. She's got a really good arch, short range of motion, short stroke. And I was, and you know, we've done a lot of training on general pressing strength because she struggles to say grind out presses when they get hard. But the thing that actually makes her bench great is that setup. But there's just so little marginal return left on that strength that all we can really do is work on the weaknesses and, you know, work a little on the strength and hope it gets better, but it doesn't look like there's much left to give there. She's nowhere near as, like, nowhere near close to that level with her squat or a deadlift, which isn't to say they're bad, but there's general, there's plenty of strengths that we can capitalise, I should say, on both of them. So for those, I would consider her an earlier intermediate. But when you get to see somebody who, you know, like Alex said, has competition experience, has relatively good body composition, has all of those things, and you look at their lifts and you go, well, the things that make that lift good are about as close to good as they're ever going to get. And the things that are weaknesses for that lift don't really seem to add a huge amount to the performance of this lifter. So there's not a whole lot of easy marginal returns left. That's when you start saying this person's more advanced. And then in terms of what you have to do to get them better, well, that's the next podcast episode, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But not the immediate next podcast episode. No. Because the immediate next podcast episode is featuring a special guest. Would you like to say who it is, Will? Yeah, we're going to have Matt Gary on. Um, Matt is the coaching director of the USAPL, is that correct? Mm-hmm. He's been their head coach at the IPF World Championships on like five or six occasions now, is that right? Um, oh, I think more than that. You reckon? Or He's been in the sport for over 20 years, I think I'd say 25. Whenever Raw World started, I think. Oh, really? Which is what, 2011? Yeah, something like that. And um, what's his gym called? SSPT. SSPT, yeah. Um, which stands for Strength Sports P for pterodactyl and T for... Is it strength sports? Training. Is that what it is? I don't know. SS sounds like strength sports and it's definitely not like, you know, the Nazi SS. Is it, is it strength sports performance training? I think strength sports pterodactyl training. Pterodactyl <laughs> Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> um... Or maybe Stegosaurus, Stegosaurus, Pterodactyl Tyrannosaurus. I'm trying to find what SSB, Supreme, is it Supreme Sports? Supreme Sports Performance and Training. Okay, Stegosaurus, Stegosaurus, Pterodactyl Tyrannosaurus. All right, so we're going to have Matt Gary on next week. Um, super pumped to chat to him. Seems like a lovely guy. A lot of insights to share. We'll be we'll, back to we'll, you. Do you want episode. to um, give a huge... Shout out and plug to your band and your next gig because we should get some listeners to turn up. Imagine if, yeah, the weekly weights contingent. Um, come to my gig, identify yourself as a weekly weights listener by wearing a red ribbon on your left wrist only. 
and Will will get you a cider from the bar. Yeah, I'll get you a free drink. <laughs> I just winked at Owen. <laughs> he can't He's going to put a roofie um, in it. Yeah, my band, the covers band, the Ronnie Darlings, are playing at the Northridge Hotel next Friday. That's Friday the 3rd. And again on the first Sunday of June at the Northridge Hotel. Join us there. Wear a red ribbon and yeah, you'll get a cider. All right, that's it for the week. I'm done. Alex, you done? Done. All right. Peace out, guys. Have a good one.